Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to On and On, written and performed by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, two-time Grammy nominee Stephen Bishop. The man Eric Clapton called one of the great singer-songwriters will join us later in the show to talk about everything from that 1970s classic to writing hits like the Oscar-winning Separate Lives for Phil Collins to the unexpected rootsy influences on his new album. We'll talk about it later in the car. Part one. Well, Scott, our listeners out there in podcast land yes. uh, don't always know this type of thing, but you and I actually haven't seen each other in a little while. We're normally kind of in here every week, but it's been yeah. a, a bit of time this time. Yeah, we've been apart for a little while, both traveling. I was uh, in New York last week where I caught bronchitis. <laughs> nice. So that was, uh, I don't know if you catch bronchitis. I don't know how that works, but I know I was in New York. I didn't have bronchitis <laughs> when I got there. I did when I got home. So uh, that was fun. Yeah, well, I heard that the forecast for bronchitis was high in New York City. I think you happened to land right right at that time. So at least you get to just uh, sit there and listen to me death rattle breathe. Uh, yeah, that for sounds the rest great. Of the day, I've, I've nice. got nine one one already pre dialed, <laughs> and my thumb is just hovering over the button. Excellent. And you were uh, did you went to Italy, right? I went to Italy. Yeah, I, I was uh, did some writing here in the states, and then went over there for literally two and a half days to write with an artist over there. Wow. And then came back here, and uh, what a jet setter. Yeah, but you know what? I never got jet lag. I wasn't there long enough to adjust. I just felt awful going in and awful right. coming out. Yeah. And then yeah. I actually adjusted pretty well. Well, at um, least we both have just spent you know time traveling and feeling awful. Totally. And, yeah. And you've been kind of globe trotting, promoting this this Bakersfield sound box set that that yes. you yes. have overseen and and written and put together and is is your your brainchild. As as long as as uh as we've known each other as adults, this Bakersfield has been a passion of yours. And yeah. I've watched you actually become into what I would consider probably the world's foremost expert on the Bakersfield sound. I like to refer to myself as as probably the world's uh, foremost expert on a thing that 12 people care about. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, so I put together this 10 CD box set, 300 tracks, 225 page book, Good all Lord. about the Bakersfield sound, Buck Owens, Merle Haggard, all the country music tradition that, that was such a big part of California in the 50s, 60s, into the 70s. So yeah, that's been cool. I've worked on it for years. It finally came out uh, in October, and so I've been kind of in promotion mode on that, which has been fun. Um, it ain't cheap. It's about 200 bucks. But yeah. uh, if you're looking for a great holiday gift for that special Bakersfield sound enthusiast <laughs> in your life, you know, if any of the 12 of those guys out there uh, don't already have it, then there you go. And and I can't tell you much about it. I haven't made it through all 10 CDs and 300 pages, but the Wall Street Journal seemed uh, to give it a glowing review. So somebody over there made it through all the material. Yeah, even the even the New Yorkers like it. Geez. Seems seems to be so. Yeah, that was well. Cool. Congratulations to you. Thanks, man. Well done. Thanks. I know there's a, a lot of effort and love went into that. We've had several contests on the show before, um, and right now we've got two running. We've got Lamont Dozier and Marty Stewart. I have never seen more response 
to, to any of our contests. And these two, we've been getting a ton of emails Amazing. on these, which is great. So the deal with the Lamont Dozier contest is we told people, email us your favorite Holland Dozier Holland song. We'll pick a name and then we'll have Lamont personalize that book for you. So, you know, either to you or to someone that you want to give it to as a gift. So it's not just autographed. It is personalized. Yeah. However you want it, you get to design it. So, um, Paul, I have written down the names of the entrants here okay. on this little handy dandy pad of paper. I and, hear that. uh, so just sort of reach in there and pick a piece of paper and, and that's going to be our winner. All right. We've got here. All right. Daniel and Standig on Standig. Daniel, Daniel and 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 st- Daniel and Stan. I'm not looking at it anymore, so I can't help Daniel you. I don't know why I'm trying to help you. <laughs> I thought it was two people, like Daniel and, and Stan, Stan, but it's Daniel and Standig. Daniel and Standig, I think. Yes, sounds right to me. So, congratulations to Daniel and Standig. Uh, we will reach out to you, get your address, and get you your personalized book. <laughs> you know what would be the worst is if, like, I said his name right like the second time I tried, and then we just kept saying it <laughs> just wronger and wronger yeah. after, you know, more wrong. Poor. <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, they got it. Oh no, no, they did not." They Poor go. Daniel's at home with his with his hands in his face, like these guys are are hopeless. His hands um, in his face. <laughs> <laughs> I got bronchitis, like, man. Like people do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at that guy over there with his hands in his face. We are so together. Anyway, yeah. and before we get to uh, to today's interview, we also want to remind folks we've still got uh, another couple weeks left until we announce the winner of our Marty Stewart book. Um, for those who didn't already hear about it, Marty Stewart has recently put out a coffee table book called The Pilgrim, A Wall-to-Wall Odyssey. Incredibly cool coffee table book. Um, we are going to draw a name for a winner for that one. And to enter that contest, go to our website at songcraftshow.com. Click contact and uh, send us a message and simply put Marty Stewart contest and we will enter you in that drawing. There's already a lot of competition in that one, but uh, go ahead and and enter and we'll announce that one on the next episode. And speaking of new things, uh, we had our friend, our new friend, Stephen Bishop, come in um, for a conversation to talk about his new album. Yeah, very cool that... uh, I mean, on and on, and that stuff he did in the 70s is like... Honestly, until we did the research here, I I didn't realize he'd written Separate Lives, the Phil Collins song, which is an incredible song. Yeah, he's one of those guys that just like keeps on going and keeps on kind of reinventing himself. He's kind of got some Americana-like tones on his new album, which is really cool, and it was great to have him come by, and he is a character for sure. Yes, he is. Funny guy, um, off-the-wall kind of dude, and like a lot of fun for us just to get to hang out with him, so... Um, great conversation with Steven. Um, check that out and, uh, and be sure to check out his, his brand new album too. Part two. Academy Award winner and two-time Grammy nominee Stephen Bishop is a guitarist, vocalist, and songwriter who began his career as a staff writer for a Los Angeles-based music publishing company. After finding success with Art Garfunkel's recordings of his material, Stephen launched his own artist career with the album Careless, featuring the now classic hits Save It for a Rainy Day and On and On. Bishop went on to find success with a number of self-penned hits as an artist, including Everybody Needs Love, Send a Little Love My Way, If Love Takes You Away, Unfaithfully Yours, and Animal House, the theme song for the National Lampoon's movie of the same name. Bishop also performed the song It Might Be You from the film Tootsie, which went to number one on the adult contemporary charts. Written by the team of Dave Grusin with Alan and Marilyn Bergman, the song won an Academy Award. Stephen went on to win his own Academy Award as a songwriter when he penned Separate Lives, which was featured in the film White Nights and became a chart-topping hit duet for Phil Collins and Marilyn Martin. 
Other artists who've covered Stephen's songs include Eric Clapton, Kenny Loggins, David Crosby, Steve Perry, The Four Tops, Johnny Mathis, Luciano Pavarotti, Helen Reddy, Diane Schur, Phoebe Snow, Barbara Streisand, and Beyonce. In his autobiography, Eric Clapton wrote that Stephen was a close friend during the 70s, whom I regard as one of the great singer-songwriters. Stephen, welcome to Songcraft. Well, thanks. Yeah, I understand <laughs> that you were raised in San Diego. Um, talk about what kind of musical influences you absorbed as a kid and how you first got into writing songs of your own. Oh, well... Um... You know, the thing that really knocked me out was uh, the Davy Crockett theme. <laughs> when I was like five, I would just, I just, Davy, Davy Crockett. <laughs> I just loved it. And uh, the show, too. Um, but I, I really uh, got into like folk music for a while there, you know. I was really young. And there was like the Smothers Brothers and uh, the Limelighters and all those guys. And I thought that was great stuff back then. Uh, but when the Beatles came along, that I guess you could say that changed my life. You know, mm. I just uh, my uh, when I was like thirteen, my brother uh, Denny uh, bought me a, a guitar, an electric guitar, and um, that's when I first started getting into it. It was kind of a you know a cheapy model. It was like a, a ro rodeo guitar or something, mm, right? And it had the strings about a mile off the bridge. But it was my <laughs> guitar, and I loved it, you know. Yeah. And I was really happy that he got me that. Um, and then he hooked up, uh, you know, his stereo, uh, and uh, you know, made it kind of in an amp, you know, and uh, you know, all of this to the chagrin of my stepfather, who <laughs> who was an <laughs> opera teacher, who was like really not digging it, yeah. and uh, made me play guitar uh, in the garage. Actually, he wouldn't let me play the, uh, my guitar in the house. Wow, wow. So yeah. garage rock, you know. <laughs> yeah right not quite i always say you know i started a band called the weeds and i always uh, uh preface it by saying uh the weeds the band that should have stayed in the garage you know <laughs> the garage band that should have stayed in the garage <laughs> that's it well you eventually found yourself in los angeles trying to make it in the music industry and i've read that you finally landed a publishing deal for a 50 dollars a week draw um but in your five years with the company you only ended up getting one of your songs cut and what i haven't read uh is I what song know it was one of them was cut. <laughs> <laughs> well my oh, question yeah, was yeah yeah daisy my question gonna be who cut it <laughs> daisy hawkins that okay. was the one yeah uh they uh well, it was a weird thing, you know. I I was um, I was just I took my guitar and I uh, had the other guys in the weeds and they stayed in the hotel and I went out just you know going door to door in Hollywood trying to get somewhere and I tried everything to do it. I would like you know sometimes use English and uh, English uh, accents and you know <laughs> I was you know a good friend of mine is George Harrison actually. <laughs> <laughs> And I would lie and say whatever it took, you know, to try and get in there. And uh, I think one time I, I played to this guy, Milt Rogers, at Dot Records once upon a time, huh. so many years ago. Yeah. And um, he said, you got anything commercial that's commercial, you know? And I was like, commercial? Was that like a TV commercial? <laughs> yeah, right. I didn't know what he meant, you know? <laughs> And, uh, you know, I wound up playing song after song. And then finally I played this new song that I was working on called Daisy Hawkins. And he went, kid, that's a hit. And <laughs> I was like, wow, 
that's a hit, you know. And so I took my guitar and I went to uh, Edwin H. Morris and I sat there and for Steve Morris and this other guy, Denny Deonti. And uh, I was only 17 and, uh, you know, I played all my new songs, which, and one of them was, I said the right thing. I said, this guy I just met with, he said that this was a hit. Hmm. And they went, really? Because they don't know anything. <laughs> they right. didn't know anything. <laughs> And back then, so um, it was actually cut by a guy named Jerry Cole, who was in the group Them, hmm. you know, that old group uh, that Van Morrison was yeah. in. Yeah. Something I've got to tell her before she, she goes away. Um, day-to-day life you know like at that point trying to become a, a songwriter did they actually sign you to a staff yeah writing they signed deal? me to a staff songwriting thing I, I made 50 bucks a week and on that I paid a uh, hundred dollars a month on this little studio apartment and then I was off and away you know I was just you know I was so happy to be on my own away from my parents you know that uh, and my creepy stepfather that uh you know, I thought, well, this is this is great. You know, so yeah. I'd stay up till three in the morning and make weird things to eat. And you know, I think that back then I would like make for a whole week. I would eat this. I would get like uh, a can of uh, barbecue beans, and I mix that with uh, uh, macaroni and cheese. And it would, and I'd put that on on crackers with butter, and I'd have that, that all amazing. week, <laughs> all week. It was like you know, I think I invented some new. I don't think Spago might showcase it, but <laughs> I'll gladly do that right now. <laughs> well, you you finally got a really big break as a songwriter when Art Garfunkel recorded two of your songs on his platinum selling Breakaway album um, from 1975. You had the same old tears on a new background and looking for the right one. Looking for the right one Will the right one ever come along? Oh, I'm looking for the right one When will the right one come along? Now, the other writers on that album are names like Stevie Wonder, Paul Simon, Albert Hammond, and Hal David. Um, you know, at that point, you're you're a newcomer to the game. How did you manage to get on such a high-profile record without really having had a whole lot recorded up to that point? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I, luckily enough, was very good friends with um, my friend uh, Leah Kunkel, who is still a very close friend of mine. She was uh, Mama Cass's sister and... Um, you know, I uh, kind of mesh right in there, and her um, uh, husband was Russ Conkel, and he was playing on all the albums and stuff, and he's a great drummer. So I think uh, she gave it to him. He gave it to Garfunkel to listen to, and um, I came in there and hung out with him, uh, and uh, I was just, wow, because so, Simon and Garfunkel was huge. Yeah. Yeah. I was a huge Simon and Garfunkel fan. You know, I was just lucky that, uh, you know, uh, I knew the right people. And uh, they always say that, you know, you have to know somebody. It's true. You do have to know yeah, somebody. Right. Um, and still write a great song. 
and still write a good song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he he did uh, my song "Looking for the Right One," and uh, and also "Same Old Tears on a New Background." And uh, you know, he's since done about eight songs of mine, I think. Oh wow. wow. In 1976, um, you released your debut album, Careless, featuring the lead single, Save It For A Rainy Day, which became a top 10 hit on Billboard's adult contemporary chart. Save it for a rainy day, you better. Save it for a rainy day. The cast of players and singers on that album includes Andrew Gold, Lee Rittenauer, Larry Carlton, Tommy Tedesco, Jim Gordon, Ross Kunkel, Eric Clapton, Shaka Khan. I mean, it's it's mind-boggling. Um, talk about the process of making that debut album, particularly in terms of just having the opportunity to have such a great cast to work with to bring your songs to life. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned some of the other people that, you know, people don't, don't usually mention, like Lee Rittenauer and, uh, um, you know, Larry Carlton. These are great players. Larry Carlton. Well, I'll, I'll just give you a couple of instances of, yeah. of during the making of Careless. One thing that was weird, I had a song called Little Italy, mm-hmm. and um, uh, this song was a complicated song. It had a lot of uh, thumb stuff and, you know, on guitar. And it really came from uh, uh, me reading the newspaper and them doing a thing on somebody died in Little Italy. And so I read Little Italy, and I just loved the way that sounded, yeah. you know, as words, you know. And so uh, I, I thought, you know, uh, there was always this guy I heard about called Emmett Chapman in, in the 70s and 80s, and he, was, he invented this thing called an electric stick. Hmm. And this thing would, you know, I heard it once and I thought, wow, that's incredible. It was like, (laughs) it was this huge thing and it was this, you know, about the size of a tow truck. Right. And um, so I thought, yeah, I always thought Little Italy, Emma Chapman, the electric stick. Yeah. Well, he comes in and he puts a track down and it's like totally wrong. It's like I couldn't huh. have been more wrong, and it was like ding, 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 ding. You know, it was, uh, it was it was weird. I mean, I'm sure it's great for some stuff, but uh, for me, it was not. And so I thought, oh my god, what am I going to do? So I called. Uh, I was I was working with Henry Louis, who produced uh, or engineered a lot of Joni Mitchell's albums, and um, I thought uh, he said, well, we we should call Harry uh, Larry Carlton. He's a great guitar player. So Larry Carlton came in and he played the harmony part on guitar that I was playing. I was he played another part. Yeah. The guy's like, you know, awesome. Right. <laughs> and it sounded great. So it came out really well, Little yeah. Italy. Um and that was one thing that, that happened. And then uh, you know, lots of other things, you know, like uh, um on Careless I at the very end I do this thing I call a trombone where I go you know, and so I'm doing this in the in Studio C at uh, A&M uh, Studios, and all of a sudden Quincy Jones comes in the studio and goes, "Who's playing that great trombone?" <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "That's me, Quincy. That's me." <laughs> you know, and it was like. Oh man, man! <laughs> it was like, you know, your best known song from the Careless album is the first track, "On and On," which became a top five single. Lost some sushi's in love with old Sam. Take 
taken from the fire into the frying pan on and on she just keeps on trying and she smiles when she feels like crying on and on on and on on and on on and on really was written because i was uh, mad at some girl or some kind of thing, and, and I wanted to put something negative about her or something. Then I did, I changed it, and you know, lots of times I just I always have a pencil or, or a pen, and uh, I'm always writing down titles because to me that's how I write. Really, that's I write from titles. Yeah. And so I got, you know, I was walking down to the store, and I got this idea for a title, and just on and on, and I wrote it down, and uh, came back to the my little duplex there and um you know there was lots of beautiful flowers that my uh landlady had had planted so uh, they were like from all over the world and she had traveled all over the world and i had i'd been to tijuana that was it for <laughs> my part of the world <laughs> i'd never really uh, gone anywhere at that at that age so you know, I started working on this chord and this chord. I just couldn't stop playing this chord, and I played it over and over and over. And days went by, and I didn't sleep. And I thought, well, I better do something with this chord. You know, and miles and people from miles and miles around would come just to hear the chord. <laughs> and so I thought, I better do something with this chord. So I, I went boom, 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 boom. And then all of a sudden, I went oh, <laughs> boom, boom, <laughs> down in Jamaica. And I wanted to have a song that would you know that was some put me somewhere you know yeah. like so it wasn't just a regular song i wanted to be in jamaica i wanted to you know travel back then now i don't want to go anywhere <laughs> just want to watch reruns of leave it to beaver or something you know one of the things to to me that's really cool about that record is especially for that era um it's a pretty unique use of steel guitar um for for the for the time because it's it not really Hawaiian it's, steel guitar. Yeah, it's it's not it's not country steel guitar, right. you know. But That's you right. didn't hear steel guitar used in pop music in that way really at, at the time. Yeah, I had a really uh, close friend of mine, still do. Um, uh, his name was um, Mike. He's changed his name a couple of times, so <laughs> I'll just say his name now, Billy London. But back then it was uh, Mike Staten or something like that. Anyway. Um, he wound up, uh, he was a great steel player. He could do all this stuff. And yeah. he wound up um, doing a demo with me. So I remembered that demo. So we, I called him in. I was with Henry Louie and we're like all ready to go. And so he does it like once. And then he goes, that's good. That's, uh, I don't, and he starts to leave. I'm like, what? No, no, no. You have to stay. I want to do some things and I want to have it do here and play here. And he's going, no, I think that's good. And he left. <laughs> and I was like, what? And I called his brother and I said, he left. He thought that he's got to come back. Right. And so he's going, I don't know. And so I, was, I thought, I'm going to show him. I'm going to get a really incredible steel guitar player. <laughs> so I, of all people, who do I get? Sneaky Pete. Nice. <laughs> I didn't know. I thought he was versatile. You know, he could do this. He could do that. Well, he played, you know, on and on. He's going, down in Jamaica, like that. And right. he's going, near, near. Right. You know, just <laughs> like it's a country song. Yeah. Right. Near, near, near. 
you know and i'm like i'm like i turned ashen you know and i thought oh no what am i gonna do this is not right it doesn't feel like jamaica <laughs> it's not like jamaica it's not it wasn't the same you know and so i called uh, uh mike back in yeah and um he played great you know yeah. and i was the one actually who mixed his uh steel guitar part there was four of four uh, he did four takes and some of them went a little out of tune so i have to switch over here and right and right. it came out great i thought yeah yeah it's very cool um well there's another song on careless called one more night which you did not release as a single but it went on to be recorded by barbara streisand helen reddy johnny mathis um and i'm curious when you are uh, an artist yourself and someone else records one of your songs um you know there's a certain letting go that has to take place oh, yeah. for, for a writer for that to happen does that process um excite you or does it give you anxiety how do you feel about the thought of okay i'm releasing my my children my songs for, yeah. for someone else to interpret well it's always great when it's a good version yeah but if it's not <laughs> Barbara Streisand. <laughs> I never liked her version of One More Night. Yeah. It was the production wasn't right. It was yeah. by this producer. I don't know. It was like, you know, really loud and big. And, right. you know, I never really heard it that way. So, um, well, it's, you know, if it's a good version, I like it. If it's a bad right. version, I don't like it. You know, it's that simple. But, right. you know, I hope for the best every yeah. time, you know. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's really fun when it's really different. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. You know, following up uh, with your second album, uh, Bish, which was released in 1978, um, featured the top five adult contemporary single, Everybody Needs Love. Open up, let me in, let me in, let it begin. talk about this a lot about how singer songwriters have basically a lifetime to prepare for that first album all the songs you've been writing as you're coming up and then you have maybe a year 18 months to prepare for the second one right um was that a pressurized process for you trying to follow not up really because i have so many songs yeah i have like i've written like 650 plus songs yeah wow. so and most of them are awful uh, like beer can on the beach or there's a hair in my enchilada is a big one. these are actual songs I mean, the whole song is like there's a hair in my enchilada I mean, really unbelievable some of the stuff i i put out there but i never put out those early songs you know i had some awful songs you know uh, dump the spittoon over aunt natty's head that was a a big one and then I got into my love songs. I always say that if you know you're never gonna really write a great song until you get your heart broken, hmm. you know. And I got my heart broken, and boom, I started <laughs> writing songs. So uh, it worked quite well. Um, <laughs> I can hear the Davy Crockett influence in the Spittoon song. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I, kinda, I kinda see where the dots That's connect funny. there on that one. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> You know, uh, 1978 was a, a big moment for you in the film industry uh, when you wrote the theme song for the movie Animal House, uh, which oh, yeah. you sang in falsetto. Yeah. 
song and even some of the other things that you've mentioned here, obviously humor is, is a part of your songwriting. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's not always something we see. You know, often you know, songwriters are tortured souls and always yeah, just reaching are. into that place. <laughs> um, t- talk a bit about where sort of like humor and comedy kind of comes in for you. I got a real picture of, of Leonard Cohen when you said tortured. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, you know, I mean, lots of times songwriters... Um, well, it depends what you want to do. You know, I mean, if you want to just be an artist and, you know, make money and that kind of thing. Years ago, I was going to do an album called Red Cab to Manhattan. That was my third album. It was, I don't know if I'm, you're going there, but I'm just going to tell you this real we quick. We are, but yeah, go for it. Yeah, go ahead. Um, and, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> What's the, the engineer's name? Tom, the uh, famous engineer producer. Tom Dowd. Tom Dowd, right. So I was going to work with him. So he comes over to my house. And uh, I was really excited to meet him. You know, he has incredible history. He did, you know, Natural Woman with uh, Aretha Franklin. And he worked with Clapton and all sorts of stuff. So I thought, wow, this is going to be really great. So this could really work. So he comes over. He asked me all these questions. Uh, and we're, And I played him a couple of things that I've been working on. They said, there's something I really want to know from you. I said, okay. He goes, uh, why are you in the business? Why do you do what you do? Well, because I like it and it's fun. I've been doing it a long time and, you know, I'm really not good at anything else. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the answer I wanted to hear. I said, Tom Dowd, right? The big, yeah. <laughs> incredible Tom Dowd. I said, well, uh, what... What is this? I don't know. That's why I wanted. He goes, "Why well, I wanted to hear you say something else." I said, "What?" He goes, "I wanted to hear you say because I want to make money." So that huh. was it, you know. Not that you make this incredible album that yeah. lives throughout time, and you know, like right. Sgt. Pepper or something. But he wanted to know, make sure that I was in in it to make money, you know. Right. And I said, "Oh, well, sure." <laughs> you know, I mean, make sure you're nice in it for too. the right reasons. That's, that's a nice little bonus. <laughs> So uh, not only did you write the song for Animal House, but I understand right. you actually are in the film. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I actually was, I was friends with John Landis back then, the, the director, and he put me in four of his movies, hmm. uh, always with a different title at the end. You know, I think in Animal House, I was charming guitar player. <laughs> in um, in um, Kentucky Fried Movie, I was charming guy. And then in, in Twilight Zone, I was in Twilight Zone, um, a charming state troop. No, that was uh, Blues Brothers, charming state trooper. Anyway, that's amazing. Always a you know, I'm not going to put it on the cover of my album though. <laughs> charming Stephen Bishop. Well, at least you know John Landis thought you were charming. Uh, he thought back then he did. <laughs> so your scene in in Animal House is is when uh, I'm on the steps and yeah. Belushi's coming down the steps and. He, he picks up, and I'm singing, I gave my love a cherry that had no stone, which I came up with that idea. Right. Uh, and um, and then he, the, I, the whole thing was planned where he was going to smash my guitar, so that was it. <laughs> it wasn't in the script. It was just something we came up with. I love oh, yeah. it. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, well, you mentioned your third album, Red Cab to Manhattan, and after you made that record, you didn't release uh, another album for the better part of a decade. Um, but you did 
become yeah. pretty involved in music for films. And that Animal House thing was sort of this this transition. Um, and even though it's not one that, that you wrote, you did have a hit as an artist with It Might Be You from, from Tootsie, which from earned Louis an Oscar Tootsie. nomination for for the writers, Dave Grusin and Alan and, and Marilyn Bergman. Um, how did that opportunity arise? It Might Be You came about really... Um, I got a call from my then manager uh, and uh, she said, hey, we got this possibility for this movie, Dustin Hoffman, Tootsie, blah, blah, blah. they're interested in me. I was like, wow, that's pretty neat. Yeah. So um, I wound up going down to meet with um, Dave Grusin, the incredible Dave Grusin, mm -hmm. uh, in his office. He had a piano there and he kind of, he wasn't the greatest singer, but he's kind of saying, uh, it might be you to me. And um, I thought, well, that sounds like a nice song. It's funny, you know, you hear it once, and then you're going to cut to singing it four trillion times in front of <laughs> human beings. Uh, so I wound up um, go going ahead and recording it with uh, Alan Marilyn Bergman. There was a line in It Might Be You, which um, Alan Bergman doesn't remember that, that was there, but it was there, and that was... Um, Da 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 do, watching lilacs grow, <laughs> and I said I'm sorry. And I had I had a meeting with uh, with the director uh, Sidney Pollack and uh, Alan Marilyn Bergman and and uh, and my manager was there at the time, and I just said I can't sing lilacs. I can't I can't <laughs> I can't sing about flowers in the song. It'll just oh no, <laughs> you know I can't. Watching lilacs grow. I, I couldn't do it with a straight face. So, <laughs> right. so they rewrote it. And they, if I found the place, uh, would I recognize the face? Huh. So they came up with that, which ain't so bad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, they're incredible writers. Uh, and they've been doing it pff, their whole lives. Yeah. Well, you so know, I mean, I guess if, if you were going to perform a song that earned an Oscar nomination from some other writers, then you might as well write a song that earns an Oscar nomination, have somebody else sing it, right? Um, that, that uh, yeah, was, I wonder what this is. Yeah. <laughs> that's We're looking at Separate Lives now from the film White Nights, and it didn't just become a number one hit for Phil Collins and Marilyn Martin, but also picked up an Academy Award nomination. And I see you brought your guitar with you today. Would you be willing to play that one for us? You called me from the room in your hotel All full of romance for someone that you'd met Telling me how sorry you were leaving so soon And that you miss me sometimes when you're alone in your room Do I feel lonely too? <clears throat> you have no right To ask me how I feel I can go on for 
hypnotized Now that we're living separate lives I held on to let you go If you lost your love for me, you never let it show. There was no way to compromise. So now we're living separate lives. So typical Love leads to isolation So you build that wall So you build that wall And you make it stronger You have no right To ask me to me so kind Someday I might find myself looking in your eyes But for now we'll go on living separate lives Yes, for now We'll go on living separate lives. Yeah, it's interesting to me to, you know, there's probably not a lot of people who have had the experience of singing an Oscar nominated song where they're not the writer and then going and writing an Oscar nominated song where they're not the singer. I mean, that's a a very unique. I never thought of that. Well, there were years later. (laughs) That might be a club of one. One was 83 into 84 and one was 85 into 86. Well, I guess they were pretty close. Yeah. So the song was essentially, was that more of an, uh, an assignment kind of writing? Like, hey, we've got this film. We want you to write a, a song for it. Kind of, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was it was like all put together. It kind of just happenstance kind of thing. Everything seemed to work. Yeah, yeah. You know, in 1986, there was a song on Eric Clapton's August album called Holy Mother that was credited oh, to boy. you and Eric. Right, um, right. And in his autobiography, Clapton wrote about you and called you a close friend during the 70s whom I regard as one of the great singer-songwriters. Um, talk about how you guys got to know one another and give us a little insight into that song in particular. Uh, I was recording Careless, and uh, I was in the studio and recorded that when um, my manager at the time, that was Bob Ellis back then, and he managed Shaka, mm. and he got me a record deal back then, and... 
uh, he popped in the studio uh, along with uh, Patty, his uh, then girlfriend, Patty Boyd. And, uh, you know, they popped in and they were just, you know, they dropped in and he, he had his guitar with him. And I think uh, my Bob Ellis had told him that, you know, I was a funny guy or something. He's, <clears throat> he came in and he said, oh, I heard you were a funny guy. <laughs> so, so I went, yeah, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, he wound up playing on Save for Any Day, which he had a little tiny amp. We we couldn't find a big amp. Right. So that's why it sounds kind of like hmm. a little amp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, it was, you know. And we wound up, um, he loved my album, Careless, and we, I wound up going to England and hanging out with him. And, hmm. uh, you know, I stayed upstairs in the... Uh, he, uh, there was this guest room that had a really terrible springs on the bed. So when you, you lie down in the bed, it went all the way down <laughs> to the floor. So um, anyway, we, we, we wound up becoming great friends, and uh, we've been friends all these years. I mean, we don't go bowling or anything, but <laughs> you know, but we do uh, have an occasional sushi meal. Right, right. Holy Mother came about because I was staying there at his, at his uh, castle, uh, and um, uh, one day he was just in his study and I came down there and uh, I was making some coffee or something and he said, uh, hey, Bish, you know, uh, you want to run a song? And so I said, sure, you know, great. Um, it goes like this. <laughs> Part two. <laughs> no, no. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I went upstairs. Oh, oh, he gave me the title. He said he didn't have any much to, to it at the time. And he said, uh, Holy Mother. So I thought, ooh, so that sounded interesting. Yeah. I'm a titled guy. So <clears throat> um, so I, I was kind of feeling down around that period anyway. I was kind of feeling down. The whole song is a very heavy, heavy song. And, you know, religious and everything. And I'm not, I wasn't used to writing it that kind of stuff, just going to church I was used to, but not writing about it. Yeah. So uh, I wound up um, just uh, working on it, and um, he worked on it, and uh, we eventually had a song. After a long hiatus from releasing albums of your own, you put out the LP Bowling in Paris in 1989, uh, featuring the single Walking on Air. And I believe that song had actually been out once before, and this was a, a reworked uh, version of it. We'd love to just hear a little bit about the journey of, of that song, um, you know, in terms of writing. and, and Walking on Air? Yeah. Well, Walking on Air, I actually, uh, it was the theme to The Boy Who Could Fly. Mm -hmm. uh, that movie, which is a good movie, um, and I met with the the director who just done uh, a movie called The Last Star Rider, Rider or something like that. I can't remember his name. Uh, so you know, I wound up uh, playing it for him after he gave me all these great ideas. I uh, wrote them down and went home and wrote it out, and then it turned into Walking on Air. Hmm. Yeah, which I. 
which Phil Collins produced on my Bully and Paris album. Well, yeah, I, I imagine maybe Phil came in and was like, hey, I, I know somebody that can play drums on this one, too. <laughs> Let me tell you something. That guy, went in his prime, he can't play drums anymore. I know. That's yeah, his most recent tour. But, I mean, in his prime, that guy could play. I mean, he mm. was a phenomenal player. Yeah. yeah. I would watch him and just, wow, what a great drummer. Yeah. yeah. And he he played uh, great on that stuff. On There's a song of mine on the uh, Bowling in Paris I always felt was one of my best songs I ever wrote and records that I ever wrote and I never got hardly heard from anybody about it but I thought it was really good and I was really proud of myself for writing it it was Sleeping with Girls and in the middle of it you hear him doing this incredible whap you know on on drums did you hear that? yeah yeah so that's Phil on that that's Phil on that track too oh yeah yeah wow wow yeah and then another thing that we did where we used a gate a gate on the um the drums and it goes he goes like backwards well, we know and... phil loves the, the gate of reverb that's... <laughs> right. yeah right yeah um you know every original song on your first three albums was a solo right by you but when we get into bowling in paris we start to see some co-writes coming in yeah same with the follow-up album blue guitars from 1996 what got you into co-writing and how was that experience different for you than just being the, the sole writer of your stuff you know, I have a real long, uh, real lazy streak. Huh. Uh, I, I, I would much prefer watching, you know, strange shows on, you know, television or something, <laughs> than you know, because writing a song takes effort, and <laughs> you really have to put yourself out there, and you know, it's just, I guess when you've done a lot yeah. and written a lot of great songs, which I feel I have. Um, you know, you don't feel that need to express yourself. Well, nobody got into music so they could work hard, right? <laughs> hey, nobody told me you had to work for it in this <laughs> business. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, I mean, I, I, I like to co-write sometimes because it forces me to write. Huh. Right. <laughs> got to yes. keep an appointment. You got to keep know. the yeah. appointment. Yeah. Did, did you find that it was, um, you know, difficult to share ideas in, in the creative space when you were used to kind of like being able to hold the control and, you know, from front to back, you make all the decisions. Was it a bit of an adjustment to get into a room and be like, oh, we're going to share this? Well, that opens up about a million things I could say. <laughs> um, one, I'll say this. Jimmy Webb and I have been friends for years and years and years. And since the 80s. I mean, yeah. we've been friends a long time. Or 70s, I don't know. So um, friends for a long time. And I, like, total, totally marvel at his ability to write i always tell people if you look in the dictionary you'll find a picture of jimmy webb there yeah. you know because i mean this guy can write yeah you know the moon's a harsh mistress uh <laughs> wichita lineman yeah. hello yeah. yeah i mean those Incredible. are amazing songs so one time he said hey bish we should write a song together and so i go oh great great so we tried to write a song together. It just didn't, we didn't gel. We're wow. two songwriters that yeah. he, he wanted his thing, I wanted my thing. Yeah. So uh, later he said, you know, Bish, you know, there's only one problem with writing with you. 
is you're in the room. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> That's good. Well, you've been fairly prolific uh, with album releases in the last few years, including Be Here Then in 2014, Blueprint in 2016, um, and the latest, we'll talk about it later in the car, which was recently released on October 18th. Um, talk about the the new album and you know some of the stuff on there to, to my ear is a little bit different than maybe what I would have expected. Um, and I'd love to just hear a bit about how that process of writing that record came about. Okay, well, it's a lot of different songs. Um, I, I tried to incorporate kind of a variety to to the to the album. Uh, so it, so many songs I hear on albums, you know, they just don't, it doesn't sound different enough as the song goes by, you know, and I tried to do uh, a little of that. Um, the very first song, of course, is Almost Home, which is the theme of this movie, Benji, that came out again. Remember the old Benji? Oh, yeah. He's back. He's <laughs> lost again. <laughs> After all these years. Lost again. And <laughs> they might he needs just, a song. <laughs> time to put Benji down. He just keeps running away. <laughs> so I did that, and uh, that song, uh, you know, people like that song. So, uh, and then I did a, a song called um, In Dreams I Fly. It's, it's by the same um, friend of mine who played the steel guitar. He wrote oh, this right. song. Oh. And it's a great song. You know. yeah. Have you ever flown in a dream? Uh, not that I recall. Have you? I've certainly fallen. <laughs> Maybe you were flying yeah, I've, before I've definitely then. fallen in dreams. I'm not sure if I, if I actually like... Yeah, I've never hit the ground, so maybe I have flown in dreams. I'm not sure, though. You know, I, I went through this thing, and, and then I came out of it, and I was kind of down. I had this problem. I, I My garage door hit me in the head, and it caused this terrible uh, depression, you know, hmm. that lasted for six months. And um, when I came out of it, I had this dream where I was flying, hmm. and it was the most amazing thing. I, I'll never forget it. And it was just, I was over here. I was going, well, maybe I'll hit the 7-Eleven. Uh, <laughs> Which would be the best use of flying yeah, powers. Yeah, I could pick up uh, something to drink, you know, and keep flying. I don't really have to use my arms. You know. So, uh, <laughs> and then um, I had this uh, song, One in a Million Girl, which I did. It was an old demo that I... Uh, that I wanted to redo. And, um, you know, a lot of times you, you make your demos of the songs that you've just written. And then by the time you record them, you're trying to catch up a little bit. So, yeah. So I had um, One in a Million Girl. And I really like how that turned out. And then I did one of Jimmy's songs, uh, Someone Else, which is uh, I could really re relate to it because it kind of sounds like a high school song, you know, the way it's written. He wrote it when he was 12. Wow. 12 wow. years old and it's brilliant <laughs> yeah yeah and um so i i wanted to do that song for a long time so i did it and then uh and then the our single is uh like mother like daughter mm -hmm. that's kind of a little bit country for mm. me yeah you know which i normally don't dabble in now the apple don't fall far from the tree the little girl grew up left a family the map in her pocket and a stuck out thumb Like mother, like daughter, like father, like son 
You know, you, you mentioned a time or two that you, you don't consider yourself necessarily the most driven writer in the world. Um, what inspires you, you know, these days to say, hey, I think it's time to make a record? I'll go back to Tom Dowd. Money. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense, right? We, we asked somebody one time, we said, what's, what's the most inspiring thing to you? And they said, a deadline. I was like, oh, that's very nuts and bolts. Well, no, I like, you know, I've just written so many songs that, you know, I like to write for something. Yeah. Uh, and rather than just write, you know. Yeah. yeah. Somebody called me up and said, hey, man, you want to write a song? You just for nothing, just sit around and you get you bring the Cheetos, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know I don't know if I do that. <laughs> right. No, it's true. I, I used to, I'm not a songwriter anymore, but I was at one time and I would book demo sessions without having the songs done yet because it makes you it makes you do the songs yeah. you know you yeah. have got to have a reason you yeah know? yeah well uh, just looking back at your career um you know there's there's obviously the the hits you know the 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 high points and maybe maybe you would choose one of the hits but i always think it's interesting to ask a songwriter commercial success aside if you were going to put one of your songs in a time capsule for somebody to discover 500 years from now and it was what you wanted this song to represent you as a songwriter and and your best work um you know can be a deep cut can be a hit uh, any idea what you might want to put in there this is after i fell off the cliff right and i'm lying there <laughs> And I'm just lying there in the dirt. Yeah. Right. You're, and I go, you're, oh, you got to come up with something here. It's your hang My last thing. Um, well, you know, the, what song, I'll just say what, what came into my head immediately was My Clarinet hmm. off my Red Cab album. Because that, that really says a lot, that song. It, it says, like, you know, why I got into the business and... Uh, I could have made. Oh, I could actually play it. I'm seeing. <laughs> I could probably play it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let me try that one. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Okay. Here it is. Here we go. This is a song of mine called "My Clarinet." I should have stayed playing my clarinet. I could have made it I could have made it Playing big halls And an all-elvis band I never should have left the town That I knew so well San Diego, can't you tell I could have made it Playing my clarinet I hang around People I used to gawk at In magazines I was 15 And it all seems so far away Get my kicks from singing money in an old garage on Saranac Street. I'm tired, I'm scared, and I want to go home. You probably think I'm kidding, and you're probably right. I feel like the Z and xylophone tonight. 
And I keep looking for an answer, but I can't put up a fight. It all seems so long ago when I, I should have stayed playing my clarinet. I could have made it. I could have made it playing big holes in an old Elvis band. I should have left. I, I never, never should have left the town that I knew so well. San Diego, can't you tell? I could have made it playing my clarinet. I should have made it playing my clarinet. I should have stayed playing my clarinet. I should have stayed playing my clarinet. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. Down in Jamaica, they got lots of pretty women. Steal your money, then they break your heart. Lots of sushis and love.